Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll take your Bible and open there, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Lord willing, for the next several months, we'll be looking at the book of, I think it's a helpful analogy. In a symphony, you have different instruments, all of which could be beautiful on their own, but when they're put together, the power and the music is all the more beautiful. I like to think of it as seeing a, a great piece of artwork for the first time by like one of the masters, like a Michelangelo or a Rembrandt. And you see that piece of artwork for the first time and a person like me just stands in awe. And I wonder how he did that. And I'm gonna talk about how great the artist is. Or maybe a feast that you go to and the feast has all these different sumptuous things you can try laying out there on it and you try each one and they're all good. And it is to the credit of the chef and you give him credit for that. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is like a symphony or a beautiful piece of artwork or a feast, and God gets the glory. It is about what God has done in Christ for us, primarily to save us. Salvation is the main theme here, and it is to his praise and glory. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We see here the first begins with a call to praise, verse 3, blessed, blessed. It's a call to praise. That word appears three times in verse 3. It's the Greek word eulageo. It means to give thanks, to be thankful for. Uh, this week at our church, unfortunately, we had a funeral. Howard Slaughter delivered the eulogy. The eulogy is a thanksgiving for the person. It comes from this word. It's a call to give thanks. In the original language, it's in, it's in the context of worship. This is one of the words in your Bible for worship. In the Old Testament, the, the word was called to bless God. And that's what this is about, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It begins by emphasizing that unique relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, who has blessed us. So we're to bless and praise God. We're to give him thanks because he's blessed us. And that's what this sentence goes on to unfold. The amazing spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with. Notice that use of blessed is past tense. And if you read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, you'll find that almost every verb is past tense. This sentence is about what God has done for believers. Keep in mind who he's writing to here. He's writing to the saints, the people of God. He's writing about how God has blessed us, past tense, God's work. God is the one who has blessed us. And notice in verse 3, who's blessed us in Christ. In this sentence, there are 11 references to in Christ. This, this sentence that is about God's work, God's blessing of salvation, has at its center Jesus Christ. And that's why when you think about salvation, it is right, and we should think first and foremost about God's work in Christ. We don't want to think about salvation apart from Jesus Christ. He's at the center of it. He's at the heart of it. And that's what this sentence, this amazing statement, this call to worship gets across. Incidentally, chapters, I'm sorry, verses 3 through 14 are a call to bless God or praise God. Beginning in verse 15 is a prayer. That's what Ephesians 1 is. 
It's a call to praise God, and then it's Paul issuing a prayer for the Christians who are praising God. So keep in mind, this is in the context of worship. It is God who has blessed us in Christ. And notice the blessing. Notice the extent of it in verse 3 for believers. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. What an amazing statement. First of all, notice the blessings are spiritual. Now, this can mean one, or two, one of two things. It could either mean that these blessings come from the Holy Spirit, which would make sense because later in the sentence he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Or it could mean essentially that they're spiritual, meaning they're immaterial. I think that's the best understanding here because he says there's spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That in heaven, where God dwells, he has given you blessings. And there are blessings there for you. And that's what this is a call to praise for. What God has done for you in giving you spiritual blessings. They're not material blessings that we're talking about here. But they are spiritual blessings and they are in the heavenly places places. That word becomes really important in the book of Ephesians because there's a lot of essentially spiritual language in this letter. This letter is a lot about the spiritual realities that we believers have and enjoy in heaven because of God's work that we don't see or experience in this life, but they're there. In fact, this phrase, heavenly places, I believe occurs five times in this letter and nowhere else in the rest of Paul's letter, letters. This is an emphasis in the book of Ephesians. These heavenly blessings you as a follower of Jesus Christ, have and enjoy that again call for us to praise him. Verse 4, the reason why we praise him first and what we're going to focus on this morning is we praise God for the blessing of election. You praise God for the blessing of election. Verse 4, even as it, he chose us in him before the foundation of of the world. This is the first blessing mentioned in this long list of descriptions of our salvation. That we are to bless God because of this. Now, some of you know, some of you are aware, and if you're not, maybe you should give thanks. There are debates about election that go back to about the third century of the history of the church, which I am not going to take up much time today with. And the reason for that is because this text is a call to praise God. This call is a call to worship God. So I think really spending 30 minutes talking about arguments for one side or the other is not the right way to appropriate this text. This is a call to worship, and it's very clear why we're called to worship him, even though all of us may not agree on all the ins and outs or how it shakes out. We're clearly called to praise God because he chose us in him. This is the blessing of election. Notice the first, he is God the Father. The second, he is Jesus the Son. He, God the Father, chose us in Jesus. He chose us. This chose us is language from the Old Testament. Actually, it's pretty common language in the Old Testament. In your Old Testament, you'll find that Abraham is chosen by God. David is chosen by God. Aaron is chosen by God. Israel is chosen by God, along with others. This is common language in your Old Testament to refer to God's choice of his people for his purposes. The closest the Bible comes to explaining why God chose Israel is Deuteronomy 7. It just comes close. It doesn't give you a lot of details. But look at Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you notice the reason? He chose you, he loves you, because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. If you go then to the New Testament, if you study your Old Testament, you'll find this language all through it. The same is true for the New Testament. You come to the New Testament and read about church, the church and Christians and followers of Jesus, this simply becomes one of the ways the New Testament refers to believers. As we saw earlier, one of the ways the New Testament refers to, to all believers are the saints. Likewise, one of the ways the Bible refers to Christians or all believers are the elect. This is just part of the vocabulary and language of your New Testament. Let me just give you a couple examples. We'll start in Matthew. This is from Jesus, Jesus' teaching. Look what he says in Matthew 24, 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That, of course, is talking about at the end when Jesus returns and his people are gathered together. They're called the elect. That's in Matthew's gospel. Look at the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and verse 14. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. It's Matthew and Revelation. Furthermore, if you study your New Testament, you'll find nearly every book of the Bible, every book of the New Testament at some point will reference election or the elect. It's simply part of your New Testament. It's a way the Bible refers to believers. Notice that he chose us in him. This is in Christ. All of salvation from beginning to end is in Christ and because of Christ. It is through Christ. It is for Christ. That's why, again, when we think about salvation, we must think always centrally about Jesus Christ, not about ourselves. Notice your salvation is in another. It's not in yourself. It's in the work of another. Here in this case, it's God's purpose and Jesus' work. That's why you're saved. That's why we should praise God and worship him. In fact, that's the theme of, 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 of these verses. That's the, the refrain. Some people think verses 3 through 14, because it's such an unusually long sentence, was actually a hymn. They think that because in verses 6, 12, and 14, you find a refrain, or a refrain that sounds like a song, and the refrain is, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. It is to praise God. Notice it is brought about by God. He chose us. He is the first cause. God is always the initiator. And again, I think you'll find this all through Scripture. You found it at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. At the, the worst moment in human history, when Adam sins against God, what does God do? God comes to him. It's amazing, isn't it? Right after Adam sins, when Adam and Eve clearly transgress what God told them to do, what happens? You find God mercifully coming to them. And what does Adam do? What does the depraved sinner do? He blames his wife, and then he blames God. It's the woman you gave me. 
But yet God in his kindness, what does he do? In part of the curses that God lays down, the consequences for that sin, the one to the woman has a hopeful promise in it that her seed, singular, would crush the head of the serpent. That there's coming a descendant from the woman that is going to undo this. And that serpent that started it, his head is going to get crushed. In that moment, God initiates. God goes to the sinners in mercy. Adam essentially blames his wife and blames God. And God gives him a promise of coming victory. And that victory would be obviously through the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. We praise God for his work. It's mentioned first among these spiritual blessings, and that makes sense. It's mentioned first because it happened before the foundation of the world, which is rightly so going to make this somewhat incomprehensible, isn't it? Which I think is part of the right way to approach a doctrine like this. None of us were there at the foundation of the world. We have very limited information about what happened. But one of the things we do know happened is God chose us before the foundation of the world. One of the implications of that is that it's obviously not based on something we do. This is why if you engage with people who believe a works-based system of salvation, they have no place for election. Usually they'll just deny it. They'll, they'll simply just deny it. Because it, it utterly undercuts any idea of your salvation being based on works. It's not based on us. It's God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Let me give you a little bit of help, hopefully, in understanding this as best as I can do. These are the things that have helped me. Maybe they'll help you. First of all, election does not minimize the essential place of faith or belief in the gospel. Election does not minimize the essential place of faith or belief in the gospel. If you listen to me preach every week, I'm going to call people to believe, call people to faith. That is at the heart of the Christian message. This teaching that God chose us believers in Christ before the foundation of the world does not undercut or deny that in any way. If I think that's, you can even see that in Ephesians 1. If you drop down to chapter 1 and verse 13, Ephesians 1, keep in mind, same sentence. Sentence begins in election. Look at what it goes on to say in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So any idea that if you believe God chose us before the foundation of the world, that makes faith unimportant or unnecessary or not real, that's false. The two are compatible. Look also in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks. There, there you go. Same, get you legeo, thanking God. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. There's no God choosing apart from faith. Notice the faith is there, verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice God is the one who calls. In Ephesians 1, God is the one who chooses. And 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, he called you through our gospel. There's no salvation apart from Christ. There's no salvation apart from the gospel. There's no salvation without faith. 
in Jesus Christ. Hopefully another thing that might help you understand this is election is from God's perspective. Keep in mind in Ephesians 1, we're talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's what we're talking about. This is God's perspective. This is heaven's perspective. We live our life, by and large, from a different perspective, don't we? We're not, in, we're not literally there right now. What we know of that, God has had to reveal to us. We're living our everyday life, making decisions day by day. But election is from God's perspective. From my perspective, anyone who believes can be saved. That's my perspective. And, and that's why I think helpful, recognizing this shift in the New Testament, when sometimes we're talking about what God has done, from his perspective and his glory, from essentially what I'm doing out on the street trying to reach people with the gospel. That's my perspective. Whoever believes will be saved. They must believe. But whoever believes, they must be saved. I don't think these things are contradictory. I don't think they should be. Election is from God's perspective. Many of the other aspects of salvation are from my perspective. Let me give you a little bit more explanation on that. There's more to your salvation than what you experience in this life. I hope that's what you see in Ephesians 1. There is more to your salvation than what you experience in this life. Don't only, view your, don't only base your experience of salvation on what you experience here. That you repent, yes. And this is one of the things people oftentimes, when you talk about election, well, I repented, yeah. Of course you did. If you're saved, I believed, yes. But there's more to salvation than that. There's more to it than that. Let me, let me, let me prove this to you. Even if you have differing ideas about election, you believe that there's more to your salvation than your repentance and faith, which you experience and which are very real. If you can imagine salvation is like a chain and you're essentially living on, a, on some of those links of that chain and you're living in the links of faith and repentance. These are actions and activities you carry out that you must carry out to be saved. But if you look back up the chain, which, friends, the Bible reveals a lot about what God's done in the past and some of the things he'll do in the future. If you look back up that chain of salvation, you will see the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will see the death of Jesus Christ for sins. You will see Jesus living a perfect life. You will see Jesus born of a virgin. All events that happened before you repented and believed. There is more to your salvation than repentance and faith. I'm just trying to demonstrate that now. And friends, I think the Bible reveals there's a lot more to it than that. Because if you keep looking back up that chain at what God did, that we only know because it's revealed in Scripture, you'll see God is holding the chain. And you'll see, I believe, the first link in that chain is he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. If you're a believer, this is a promise, an encouragement, a spiritual blessing directed to believers. And that's why you should praise God for it. Do you have to praise God for some things you haven't fully worked out or reconciled in your mind? Well, I hope that you praise him that he's Trinity and that he's incarnate and that he's eternal. Anybody have eternality worked out in their mind? Why do you believe it? Because the Bible reveals it. It's more to salvation than what we experience in life. So what should that lead us to? Again, praise God not only for election, but praise God for the purposes of election, which this text goes on to state. Look at it. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's a purpose here. Why God chose you before the foundation of the world here is for a purpose that you would be holy. Notice it's holy and blameless before him. I don't think this is talking about holiness in this life because it says before him. You as a sinner, how are you as a sinner going to come into the presence of a holy God? Well, the first way, the first reason is because God chose you to be holy. He chose you to be holy. Again, holiness is not based on something that we do. Holiness ultimately is based on God's work for us, on our behalf. And this is, I believe, really important to understand, and I think very clear in a passage like this about election. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Holiness is the effect. Election is the cause. Now, do you see the danger in getting these reversed? Which many do. If you say holiness is the cause and any other aspect of salvation, be it election or redemption, whatever it may be, is the effect, you've totally got it out of order. No, election is the cause. Holiness is one of the effects. Secondly, election gives no excuse for sinfulness. Gives no excuse for sinfulness. If people would reason, and this is part of the problem with these issues, people bring, we can't help but to bring our own reason into these matters. People reason, well, if you believe God chose you before the foundation of the world, then it doesn't matter how you live. False. Utterly false. That is not the way a Christian thinks or believes. Why do I think that? Ephesians 4 through 6, written to the same people. If you go read Ephesians 4 through 6, it will have expectations from God about how we are to live in this life. First of all, I see that I'm chosen to be holy and blameless before him. Secondly, I have just even the rest of the book of Ephesians to demonstrate how I individually live, not merely corporately, but how I individually live and as a corporate group as the church before God is utterly essential. That there are expectations God place upon his elect, his saints. So any kind of disconnect that, that, that sadly has haunted the church for years of, well, you know, I'm good to go. I'm saved before the foundation of the world. That is false thinking. That is not the right and appropriate use of the doctrine. It's what John Newton said, which I'll quote over the next few weeks. It's an improper management. A lot of people see things in the Bible and then they improperly manage them. That's not the right management. The right management is recognizing God did this that I would be holy and blameless. You see those two words? This is, this is God's plan for the church accomplished by Jesus Christ. Look at it in Ephesians 5.27 where Jesus is comparing the husband-wife relationship to the church. Look at, look at one of the, the things Jesus accomplishes for the church in Ephesians 5.27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's the same two words in the original language. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to make his church holy and without blemish. Again, this is not something we do. Something we're utterly dependent on Jesus to do. He's got to make me holy. He's got to keep me holy. Only he can present me to God without blemish. That is not my life. I need Jesus. And that's why I came and died. Just a couple points of application about this. Number one, 
because of what we read here, you always have deep reasons to praise God, which again is the point of this text. Bless God. You always have deep reasons to please God or to praise God. That these realities that you read about in Ephesians 1, I think this is one of the reasons he wrote Ephesians 1. These realities are untouched by the world. The church in Ephesus was a struggling, suffering church, living in a very hard time, in a very hard place. And Paul wants to write to those Christians to encourage them and call them to worship God because of what he's done. What this says about what God has done is not affected by what happens in your life or what happens to your parents or what happens to your children because terrible things happen in life and therein is the proper management of the doctrine of election. It is for the comfort of God's people. It's not a doctrine about evangelism. It's a doctrine to comfort the people of God in distress. That's how it's used in the New Testament. It's, called, it's used here to call us to praise God. Secondly, our being in Christ is anchored in eternity. you in Christ, that's anchored in eternity. This is why Paul can say in, in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, yet future. It's coming up because God began a good work in you. Let me close with a quote from a veteran pastor, and he's a Scotsman. That's always a good thing for you to know. Eric Alexander said this, I think a very helpful outline of Ephesians 1 in this issue. The doctrine of election is, number one, biblical. It's in your Bible. In fact, it's in nearly every book of the New Testament. It's biblical. Number two, it's difficult. It's difficult. There are things about God that we cannot and will not fully comprehend. It's difficult. Number three, it's profitable. And again, I believe that's the, that's the proper management of the doctrine. Here it calls us to praise. Elsewhere, throughout the Old and New Testament, it's an assurance of faith for the people of God that no matter what happens, God is your God. Eric Alexander goes on to say about managing the doctrine, I think quite helpfully, number one, it's not a banner under which we march. What he meant by that is it shouldn't define your theology. I don't know if you've met some of these quite unhelpful people. But it's like the only thing they know is the doctrine of election. Or every so-called expository sermon is really an exposition on an election. Quite odd to me to hear that. But they're out and about. Eric Alexander, the Scotsman, says, I think rightly so, it's not a banner under which we march. Friends, that banner would be Jesus Christ in the gospel, by the way. That's the banner. Secondly, it's not a bomb we drop on people. I don't know if you've ever been bombed by election, but some people use it as a weapon. Also an improper management. It's a consolation and a call to worship. So it's not a banner, it's not a bomb, it's a bastion for our souls. It's a bastion. That God has done something for you in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's a bastion for our souls. Bow down and worship him. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise your name. Help us to bless you and praise you for that's what you call us to do. But God, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Help us to confess and recognize our finitude and our limitation and also confess your greatness and your work.
to stand in awe, God, of you and worship you now. For you are worthy. And God, in this symphony of salvation that you have orchestrated and composed, you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be blameless and holy. Thank you, Lord, that my holiness is not staked on my failing life, but it's on Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who perfectly kept your commands and lived for us. So help us, God, in all things to point toward him knowing that all this is only possible in him, through him, for him, and by him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.